0: The Climate Water Project. Well, today I have uh, Zach Weiss with us. Um, welcome. I'm glad to have you on.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: Cool. Well, Zach Weiss is a, um, he's a founder of Elemental Ecosystems and Water Stories. Elemental Ecosystems is a water retention landscaping Uh, implementation uh, company and uh, water stories is a educational platform about water um yeah so do you want to say a little bit about uh your origin story with water and i I think i saw that in your bio that you worked with sepp holzer um is that how you began with water or was it before that
1: Uh, you know i i kind of always grew up loving water i was really lucky to grow up where I could just walk out to this huge spring, I didn't even realize how special it is, or how enormous of a water source it actually is, but, uh, you know, basically a small creek just flowing out of the ground. So always loved water, always loved nature, sought different pathways to create some meaningful, gainful employment by honoring those things. And yeah, eventually found Sepp Holzer and that just blew the lid off of everything everything that I dreamed of wanting to do as a child here was this person already doing it uh, and I got the opportunity to work with them pretty heavily over a course of five years and I still keep up with them regularly and uh, every time I see him I learn something more
0: do you want to say a little bit about Sepp Holzer and what he does
1: yeah Sepp Holzer is really a pioneer rebel farmer he's just someone again who really loves nature and always sought to follow the laws of nature follow what worked best for nature and so he you know kind of went through the traditional agricultural training that all farmers were going through at that time he saw just the horrible effects it was having on the quality of life on his landscape and he went a totally different path where he really worked with all the natural forces and created this beautiful farm called the Krameterhof It's like a garden of Eden in the Alps, 72 interconnected ponds and water bodies and forests and food just falling on the ground year round. Uh, And then since started creating these model demonstrations all around the world, um, throughout Europe, Asia, Africa, America, um, all over the place he's been.
0: Cool. And uh, what was his process of mentoring you or how did you learn from him?
1: You know, the first time I heard his name, and then just fortunately, he was coming to a workshop in Montana a couple of months later. And so I went to the workshop, and it just grabbed me totally. Uh, Even though I was paying to go to this workshop, I ended up working from basically 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. to help the project unfold. Uh, and that eventually led to a whole organization, group of people continuing to bring SEP to the U.S. for workshops and English speakers to Austria for workshops. Um, we did that for a number of years, and then I kept working with projects on SEP. At that point, um, he, you know, recognized my value in helping implement projects, and so I got to do a number of different projects with them afterwards. Uh, and that really, you know, taught me everything that I use on a day-to-day basis.
0: Mm. Do you want to describe some of the projects you've done to um to to retain water on the landscapes?
1: Yeah, I mean all sorts. It's you know, it's different things for different people and for different places. Usually it's figuring out how to hold water on the landscape and how to set the land up in a way that's gonna meet the goals of the people and the goals of the place. So this takes a lot of different forms, but a lot of times it's some type of terrace, some type of agroforestry, some type of water retention. A lot of times it's a mix of these agroforestry systems on terraces and then water bodies. Uh, And this has immense results on the landscape itself and the surrounding lands from springs being recharged to having water supplies year round, having animals that never would have been in that place. It really transforms. So, you know, a lot of different projects all over the place, but one that I really like in California, um, as you're not there currently, but uh, have been living there, we did a project where we saved the house twice, once from flood and landslide, and once from fire, it was actually the fire first, and then with the fire, the chaparral landscape landslid, and the earthworks that we implemented saved the house twice, yet everything was illegal, we, you know, it's, The furthest thing from permissible in a state like California Um, so there are challenges around it but we're always just helping people a lot of it's just recognizing unrealized resources that they have I've been to wineries that have really scarce water supplies that have a spring that's drain tiled under their property and they don't even know is there and producing a lot of water and we can really quickly Set them up in a way where they can steward that spring, set it up for long-term viability, and use it to replace the extractive water sources uh, that they were dependent upon and weren't producing enough just to wash their equipment. Even
0: mm. with that house in, uh, was it a house or a farm in uh, California? How big was it, and what was the earthworks you did that helped, you know, prevent the problem? Yeah,
1: so we did a bunch of uh, a bunch of terracing, a couple of water bodies. It's probably a 30 or 40 acre site. So not super big, but not super small, very steep. And so first the fires came through and essentially from all of the added hydration and greenery in this landscape that we had created through these terraces, infiltrating water and water bodies holding water uh, that dampened the fire and made it so that it didn't burn this property then when everything from uphill landslid, the water body that we created actually caught the landslide before it would have wiped out the house. So, you know, they had to dig the water body back out, it all filled up with earth, and there was a lot of work to restore it to what it was. Uh, But at the same time, it saved a multi million dollar house that would have been a lot harder to restore than a water body. Mm.
0: Do you want to describe any of your projects overseas that you've done?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, where to start? Um, uh, You know, I think one thing that I really like about overseas is just how quickly you can set people up in a long-term sense. We work on a lot of remote sites where people are just getting to land, and in a month's time, we can set them up with access ways, cultivation areas, water bodies, spring water sources for drinking. Uh, One project I really like for a worm farmer in Australia In the worst drought on record, when everyone else was having to sell off their cows and they're basically going belly up because there was just no water anymore. We had just done water retention features right before this drought started, they just got one or few big rains to charge it up and he produced more worms than he ever had before, which are highly dependent on the water to help cool the soil And so just from this, you know, two weeks of work that we had done there two years ago, when all of the other farms in the area were just out of luck, he was doing better than he ever had before. And now, you know, he was water scarce for his new water paradigm as far as what's possible, but he had plenty of water for everything that he needed. Mm.
0: Um, Can you describe for the listener, like, what is earthworks and what are the basic principles about around designing earthworks?
1: Yeah, so earthworks are moving, reshaping earth. Uh, It's usually going to be with some very specific purpose. And one of the things that I really try and do is how can we move the minimum amount of earth for the maximum benefit? So a lot of this relates to reading the landscape, understanding where to put your time and energy, where it can be really effective. And then what we're doing is basically using some kind of work energy, whether it's human labor or equipment energy, to restructure the natural materials in a way that's going to help receive the rains or revive that landscape. Uh, Now, in, you know, a lot of people look at this especially coming from an ecosystem restoration background and saying, well, that's pretty heavy handed to come in and rip everything up with bulldozers. How are you saying you're helping the earth with that? The reality is in the undegraded places, you really don't need to be that heavy handed. You can be really soft handed or do very minimal things and have a healthy water cycle. But when there's been decades, centuries of destruction at the hand of you know, humans, and then all of this equipment power, it's really hard to undo that with a shovel. So in these situations where you look at Australia, in a lot of places, they're mining for gold right above bedrock. And so the first thing they do is cut a big drain all the way down to bedrock to drain all the water out of the landscape to be able to mine the gold. When they're done, they don't put that back together. They don't close that drain that they put. And so now they've desertified that whole landscape plus the areas downhill that would have been you know fed by that recharge Uh, and so in a lot of cases you know in the united states we've channelized all of our waterways sometimes just for carrying logs downhill sometimes just for transport of boats Uh, so we don't even understand in a lot of ways how destroyed things have been you know, I look at another place I've worked in, Dawson City in the Yukon. You think in the early 1900s, they moved the Yukon River with a steam-powered dredge. That is just mind-boggling, that it's a big river, and they moved the whole channel, just shooting rock up into the air to pan for gold with steam power. So it, it's really quite extensive, the level of manipulation, when you start to understand it. And so with these earthwork techniques we're able to undo these lineage pieces of damage in a really short period of time. Mm.
0: So when you come onto a piece of land, how do you tell, if it's not raining when you come on, how do you tell, are you able to guess where the water is going to go? Or do you need to talk to the owners to figure out how the water flows on the piece of land?
1: You know, in an ideal world, I'd see every property at its wettest time and at its driest time. In reality, that's not possible, not practical. It's, it's possible, but not very pragmatic. Uh, and really, the wonderful thing is that water leaves signs everywhere it goes. So you can see what it looks like at the rainy time, even at the driest time of year, by reading the signs that water leaves behind, whether it's banding in spots that have been pooling, whether it's different types of vegetation in areas that it's moving underground, whether it's erosions and cuts and movements of soil it's creating, you can read the big flows of water oftentimes even without seeing the active flow just by, it's very similar to animal tracking. You know, when an animal travels a place, it leaves crushed blades of grass And that leads you to see where that animal traveled. It's the same exact thing with the water. And so when you know how to read a landscape, you can see what it looks like over years and what it looks like at different times of year by reading those little small signs that it leaves behind. Mm.
0: And what's your philosophy on swales as a way to kind of slow the water and to catch the water and to infiltrate it down to the aquifers?
1: You know, I'm not a huge fan of swales. Um, I think, you know, there's, I think a big part of that is how overapplied and misused they are in many ways. I think it's a very easy concept to understand. So people think, you know, A plus B equals C, so it's really easy to put in. And I'd say I've seen as many swales that didn't really work out great as I have that did work out great. Um, I think there's some management issues. I like to say that I've never seen a landscape where I personally would recommend a swale. Um, Now, I did recently do a consult on a big flat pancake dairy farm uh, in New Mexico. And I did think that on contour infiltration basins made sense there, AKA a swale. Um, So I can't really say that, but even so, I think you know, you need to really factor in the different materials. For example, I've seen swales that cause landslides when, you know, people open up. If you don't factor in what the different layers are and you just think, okay, the earth is sloped this way and the contours go this way, so I'm going to dig out my swale, you can actually make things considerably worse in a lot of situations where you have a more permeable subsoil than your topsoil. And by opening up that access into the subsoil, Now that water, instead of interacting with the living crust, is just immediately going down into the drier parts of the Earth that don't have any organic matter and don't have much life going on. Um, So in some cases, you can overhydrate a slope and actually create a landslide by infiltrating so much water into a loose layer like that. Now, I have seen examples where it works well also. and, you know, I think a, a big piece of it comes down to management. Uh, another bone that I have to pick with swales is I still don't get where you're supposed to travel. Is it in the ditch that's full of water part of the time? Or is it on the berm that's planted with trees? Or is it in another area? And then a big part that I see with swales is oftentimes machine created swales. The excavator is driving all over the above and below portion of the swale, so they're decompacting the earth as they're creating the swale, but immediately compacting the earth above and below. When you do a landform like a terrace, instead you're actually riding where you're moving the earth, and so you can decompact as you go and leave behind something that is, you know, even less compact than it was when you began. Um, So I mean, I I think there's value in them. Uh, You know, like anything, you can't look at one bad example and say, oh, the whole thing's useless. Uh, But I do think it's probably the most over applied technique in permaculture, just because it's easy to understand. And a lot of times people don't think out all of the unintended consequences that might result.
0: So what is your preferred method to slow the water on the landscapes?
1: It depends on the landscape. You know, in some places, it's just as simple as putting in the right types of vegetation or treating the soil biology. Uh, In some places, it might be some kind of ripping or things of that nature. Um, In some places, it might just be plantings on contour that will eventually accumulate things. Some places it's going to be water bodies, infiltration bodies beaver dam analogs, and in some places, it's going to be terraces to infiltrate and move the water across the landscape. A lot of people look at my terraces and say, oh, that's a great example of a permaculture swale. But there's some significant differences between them um, in how they're constructed, in how they're laid out, with oftentimes a very shallow pitch rather than perfectly level. in their access in their use and in the surrounding uh, disturbance or lack thereof created in the process mm.
0: so, so your terrace uh, is not perfectly flat there's a little bit of a indentation to catch water is that what you're saying
1: uh, The so the sometimes they're inward into the slope if this is the slope there's pitched back like this sometimes okay. they're outward They're flatter than the natural slope, but they're still outward leaning. Oftentimes they're sloped one way along this. So whereas a a permaculture swale is gonna be on contour berm, a lot of times our analogous feature is gonna be an inward leaning and then pitched along the length so that the first amount of water can infiltrate. Once the soil hits water holding capacity, the water gently moves back to the slope and across the length of the slope to wherever you're trying to feed the water to. That's only if you're trying to catch the water off of this feature as well, the excess water. One of the things that I really like about this is in a climate that's really wet for several months or a long period of time, you don't suffer the same kind of water logging, inundation and anaerobic conditions created by a swale. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say, why would you wanna put a swamp on a hillside? And that the hydration by the swale can actually create anaerobic soil conditions. Whereas the terrace allows you to infiltrate as much water as the soil can absorb. And then once the soil is full, that water can then move somewhere else Um, rather than continuing to infiltrate it till it reaches anaerobic conditions.
0: And then if people, when, when is it a good idea to put a pond in your land? If if you're trying to, you know, capture some of the rainfall.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, You usually want some clay to build the water body with. Uh, You usually need an impermeable layer in the ground that you're going to tie that clay into to build the water body. Uh, You need some source of water, some catchment area, whether it's an area upstream, a roof of a building, something of that nature. And then ideally, you want to work it within a land shape where you can do a relatively small amount of earthwork for a big body of water. Uh, So for example, a a valley landform that's wide and open, you can put a small earthen body at the bottom to make a big long water body. Whereas if you're on a ridge, you need to do a lot of work just for it to be flat, let alone to hold water. Um, So some of its geological conditions, some of its uh, geographical conditions, And then some of it is the catchment area and the climate and how much water is flowing in from different sources and at what times of year. And then if all of those go into something that you like as an end result and is helpful for the landscape, then it makes a lot of sense. Uh, So there's, you know, I think a real misnomer about ponds and water bodies, because everyone thinks of them as pools. And as things that have a water level and that water level never fluctuates, but no natural water body never fluctuates in its water level. And so in a lot of cases, I think we need to normalize leaky ponds, ponds that infiltrate into the groundwater to recharge. But that's also not as desirable a feature for people. People like the pretty year round pond with the fish jumping, uh, which when you can accomplish that, that's great, too. They each have purpose, Uh, but so deciding where and when to put a pond in is this careful calculus of all of these different factors rolled into what is the end result going to be, and then are the people going to be happy with that end result? Mm.
0: And then, if the pond dries up in the in the dry season, is
1: that okay? You know, it's funny in places where the pond isn't going to hold water year round, the pond is even more necessary. So it's doing good landscape recharge as it's infiltrating. You know, if we really want to restore aquifers and restore waterways, we need to create a lot of infiltration to replace what we've lost. So in many ways, it's even better than a pond that holds its water really well as far as the landscape uh, or the greater hydrology. But then when you look at the ecological benefits, year-round water has a lot of benefits. So they're both good. Um, I think the one is more attractive than the other. So it's kind of what everyone is going for. Whereas these leaky ponds that infiltrate seasonally are very important for landscape level rehydration, but they're not as pretty. So they're a lot harder of a cell to convince people to put in place. Mm.
0: And then what about vegetation around the, the pond? Like, are you, do you need to grow different stuff and try to attract animals and stuff to keep the water?
1: good shape. yeah the vegetation is key you know if you just build the water body it's just a very temporary thing so in addition to that we're always treating the catchment area with different types of vegetation based on the goals of the people sometimes we're just putting out a bunch of stuff that's going to be food for wildlife sometimes it's planted as a food forest as food for people sometimes some mix between the two uh, or medicinal herb gardens so it, this is the vegetation is where you really can start to cater it to people but having a nice water body is heavily dependent on the vegetation both surrounding the water body and in the catchment area of that water body so we also run into situations where we need to make accommodations for water that's coming off of catchment areas that the people don't own so for example one project Uh, people had cleared the land uphill and they were getting huge amounts of sediment every year and they still get huge amounts of sediment every year so rather than just creating a water body we had to create a water body plus a sediment trap to be able to manage all of that sediment because they don't control that vegetation that catchment area it's always going to be eroding or have the potential to now if they controlled that you could Put it in place stabilize it with vegetation and prevent the issue uh, where it's being created with the raindrop
0: mm. and is there a certain vegetation that helps the water keep cleaner or- oh yeah
1: there i mean there's a whole mix of different plants um and then there's also these different zones of water that are also very important for keeping the water clean Uh, You know, typically your perimeter plants that are in the photic zone of water are going to be what's responsible for combing the nitrates and phosphates out of the water. So that's hugely beneficial. Uh, You need some kind of flow zone, some kind of biological filtration, both an oxygenation of the water and the medium that the bacteria live on that filter and clean the water. Uh, And then it also really helps to have some kind of deep zone. Where you're keeping very cold dense structured water uh, high oxygen content that's pretty stable and that helps balance out the ebbs and flows that happen in the upper layers mm.
0: cool um it, you know recently i've seen a number of pieces of land where you know there was huge rains and they just ripped out huge ravines and gullies um like there's so much power on the water as it catches and it just rips through the landscape so what, do you have, what, do you, um, what are some of the solutions for uh, landowners that have ravines ripped through?
1: Those are really the ideal places to be working. Uh, that's where you, know, you have this incredible resource that's meant to benefit that land. It is instead degrading that land and carving it up. And so a lot of times in those kind of ravines are where we're creating water bodies. Um, Sometimes we're even weaving that water back and forth across small sections of that landscape, returning it to its natural flow course, but also letting it hydrate some areas. One of the big things is, you know, I've heard Rajendra say where uh, water runs, make it walk, where water walks, make it crawl, where water crawls, make it go into the ground. And so if you can do these things with the water that's running through the landscape, that really helps build up The water within the earth. So a lot of times in steeper areas, you know, it's going to be some amount of terracing and vegetation treatment to try and actually get more of the water going into the ground where the rain meets the soil. And then in some of those gullies and ravines, it might be something like beaver dam analogs, check dams, where we're creating impoundments to catch the erosion that's being created and also dissipate the force in the water uh sometimes it's going to be adding woody debris or rocky features to help stabilize and prevent further erosion in some of those areas and sometimes it's going to be building proper year-round water bodies uh, along those ravines that are otherwise eroding in the rains mm.
0: um for the for the average landowner in a in an urban setting with a you know a backyard that's maybe not that big um what is it there- suggestions there and for those uh, types of landowners of how to retain more rain into your backyard?
1: Absolutely. There's a lot of, a lot of low-hanging fruit in that world. Uh, because for one, you know, in many places, it's not about how much water we receive, but how many times we use it before we, it leaves. And so we look at something like the rain that hits the roof of our house or the driveway does that immediately run away meaning it's never getting any use on that land or does it feed into a rain garden that then helps that water infiltrate that then is transpired by plants that then some recondenses now that water is being used again and again on the same landscape similarly you look at something like gray water that in you know more drought prone areas should really be required What we're doing a lot of times with these municipal water systems is capturing water up high, piping it quickly downstream into homes, and then piping it quickly downstream even further. So that water that used to feed again and again, slowly through the landscape is intercepted, shunted downhill, used and immediately shunted downhill. The more of that water that we can get going into the landscape after our use, that's a real easy win. And that's water that, you know, we're using, we're consuming anyway, that will hopefully then feed more life on that landscape. And, you know, with this, I I think of one project we did in Orange County, uh, where, you know, you're going through this just kind of apocalyptic place if you're not used to suburbs, um, where it's just all super hot and then you get to this one yard and it's full of trees and they barely irrigate because they have fed so much water into the ground and the tree roots are feeding more water in. And it's actually very nice and cool in their yard. Not only is it shaded, but the trees are actively cooling this immense amount. And so you're driving through this neighborhood and it's just hot and sweaty. And then you get to their backyard and it's nice and cool. And so if we look at, you know, it's hard to make an impact on the water cycle in a big sense, if you're just one little yard in a concrete wasteland, but you can make a very real difference for yourself and for the quality of life you experience as one person in that backyard. Um, So if enough people did it, it could really make a big impact, but it also makes an immediate impact for those that do choose to do it.
0: Mm. Is there any kind of movement or small movement of trying to get a lot of people in the urban areas to, to infiltrate rain more into their landscape? Like, is there a lot of people like you working with landowners to to work with their water systems?
1: I think it's definitely growing. Um, You know, I know a number of people in California that have gone through our course that are now doing this for people, whether it's backyard rainwater capture systems, rain gardens, water systems. Um, It's, you know, I think it's something that we're very early in the movement, but it is something that's definitely starting to take place in different countries around the world, in different places. Um, There's certain climates where it's almost a necessity for survival. And I think those places, it's really starting to catch on strong. And there's other places that are very well buffered by a regular rainfall climate. Uh, In those places, it's a little bit slower to catch on because there's not the same degree of urgency and need.
0: Um, I was talking to some people in Africa and, you know, they're having a lack of drinking water and, uh, you know, and they don't have very many funds. Um, but some of the places where they have a lack of water, it's just in the dry season because in wet season, there's a lot of water. What are some of the solutions there to kind of provide drinking water for some of these countries in Africa?
1: Yeah. And this is a great, great point. Cause one of the most common things is you go in and you drill a well. And the reality of that well is it solves a very pressing and urgent need immediately, but it doesn't solve it long-term. They usually only, especially in situations like that, you put one well in, it gets so overused, they only usually produce for five to 20 years, and then they go dry because they're just constantly used because it's the one source of water. Now what you're doing is you're actually lowering the water table more and more, making it even harder to find water. Uh, So it's not to say that we should never be putting in wells, and sometimes this is the easiest way to solve an immediate need, but what we really need to be focused on also is landscape level rehydration, where all of that water that's moving through that landscape is fed into that landscape instead of drained away, then creating water in the dry times. Um, So this reminds me of a project we're going to be doing actually this fall in Mozambique, where you know you go around the village at every watering hole it's just surrounded by women waiting for it to refill for them to scoop out a little bit of muddy water out of the bottom and it'd actually be very easy to fix this just with either human or machine created interventions that when they have all this water flowing through get more of it going into the land so that those aquifers don't go dry as quickly so that they're being recharged each year Uh, And so what we'll do in that kind of a situation is we'll try and come in with some equipment to make one big change quickly as a proof of concept so that when we leave next dry season, they have water because of that one water body. But we'll also build several smaller water bodies with the local labor training them how to do it so that after this proof of concept water body shows its worth, they can then continue that work uh, to neighboring villages and as much as they would like to at that point.
0: So by water body, you mean a pond?
1: Yep, yeah. Uh, In a lot of places there's, a a water body I'd say is a more general term than a pond. I like it because it includes something like a vernal pool or an infiltration body or a recharge body, but some body of water, seasonal or year round. yeah, in these cases, some of them are going to be seasonal recharge basins that will go dry in the dry times, but will create more water in the wells, the shallow springs and wells that they're using. And then we'll have other water bodies that will be intended to be year-round perennial bodies of water.
0: And can people drink straight from the pond, or is it only after it goes into the aquifers it's better that it's filtered? It,
1: there is some real risks drinking straight from the pond. I, I mean you can people have for long i mean you think of in the united states you used to be able to drink from any body of water in the whole turtle island before columbus came um, now you are not even supposed to swim in a lot of the bodies of water let alone drink from them so a lot of that depends on environmental factors what i consider drinking water is spring water that means rainwater, water that's been distilled by the sun. It's then fed through the earth, been mineralized, charged, and structured in the earth. And then it comes back out as spring water. Um, so there are ways you can you know, do similar kind of filtration processes. But the, the real best one is just to let nature do it herself.
0: And what is cleaning the water as it filters into the aquifers below?
1: Uh, Different things. Some of it is just the actual particles of sand, silt, and clay grabbing onto things. Some of it is the bacteria that live in those environments that are consuming things. Um, And then some of it is just the the chemical constituents and the binding that happens in those soil environments. Uh, So you look at even something like a brownfield site or a really toxic site, one of the best ways that we have for remediation is mix it up with soil and cap it with soil and let the soil process it and so the same kind of thing is happening as that water is moving through the soil it's being processed by all the life in that soil mm.
0: and is this something like an African community say they don't have much money but they have shovels and stuff can they just dig this on their own Or is there something they need to Do they need more expert help you would you say or can they do it on their own
1: You know, it's really pretty simple. I mean, this is the whole idea with water stories is to teach people how to do it so they can do it themselves. Um, I think a lot of times you need, it's helpful to get set in the right direction. For example, let's say you know how to make the water body, but you choose the wrong spot. Even though you do everything right, it doesn't work out well because you didn't know that that was the wrong spot yet. So a lot of times it helps to get a little bit of guidance at the very beginning to get going in the right direction, Um, but it really can be done entirely on your own as well. And it can absolutely be done with labor. When you look at all the examples in India that Rajendra Singh has done and these huge restoration projects that, you know, now they're using some equipment, but at first it was entirely by hand, people with soil and baskets on their head. And they were able to make really incredible changes, even just with that human labor piece. Mm.
0: And if they don't have the money for wells, is it able to infiltrate it so it comes out in springs, or it, it, you don't always know if
1: water will come out in the springs? You know, usually it's it's different in different landscapes, and you can have different degrees of confidence. In some landscapes. water that you're infiltrating will immediately impact very deep wells. In other landscapes it's only going to impact the upper layers. Um, In some landscapes it's going to recharge an aquifer that you can then pump out of. Some landscapes it's going to recharge an aquifer that then comes out as a spring. Uh, So it's it's not always a clear equation or even sometimes you just don't even have a good estimate for it. Um, But it's you know, you look at one project I saw in India, they tried to put in 27 wells, all of them were dry. And for less than the cost of those wells, they put in one big water body that, you know, that community went from nine hectares of agriculture to 650. They produced four times over the cost of the dam the first year in just their extra agricultural production. Uh, So when you look at the costs of it, compared to one single well, it's expensive. But if you look at the impact for the region and that it's a long-term impact, it's also gonna recharge downstream aquifers, it starts to be a really good uh, cost-benefit analysis.
0: So in India, when they dig ponds, are they, how do they get the water from the ponds to the agricultural fields?
1: A lot of it's just with pumps. They're just gas-powered pumps. A lot of it's with gravity. Um, A lot of it is flood irrigation. And then in a lot of cases, they're actually going to piped and sprinkler systems um, to be more judicious with the water. Mm.
0: And then when they, and then the water that does infiltrate into the ground they use for drinking water, I assume. And that is usually drinkable Yeah, in the Indian countries. Okay.
1: Yeah. So in a lot of cases, they're creating Johad's infiltration features in the upland areas that are recharging aquifers that then feed these relatively shallow uh, wells that are closer in the village and that's where people get their drinking water and, and most of their water usages. So in a lot of cases they're not actually using the water directly from the water body and in some cases they're creating infiltration basins that they want to go dry as quickly as possible. So they're holding that water when it's flowing over to get it going down kind of like what i was describing earlier with a bad swale but here they know they have a bottom and they're slowly filling up the bottom to the point where they can access it with a well downstream of that water body
0: oh, okay so so is the, is the um is the groundwater increase enough that the trees in those landscapes are actually able to extract water from the aquifers so the roots can reach down enough
1: uh, in a lot of cases, yes. You know, it's not going to be in every case, um, but generally, what what you have happen is you have a lifting and a widening of the water table associated with the surrounding rivers. Uh, so you start to get more vegetation around the rivers themselves. You start to get more vegetation in the area as well. In some cases, they've lifted the water table five meters that it's come up just from this work, and so it's. Uh, In many cases, yes, Um, but it's not like it's it's surrounding the infiltration zones and the natural water lines rather than just the whole landscape ubiquitously. Mm.
0: And one thing that I've been trying to investigate is, is if you increase the uh, water enough, the water table enough, then you're going to hydrate the landscape more in the dry season. So that should reduce wildfire possibility. Do you have something to say? What do you think about that?
1: Oh, absolutely. And big time. And you see it with beaver dams. I mean, you can look at photos of beaver dams after fires and you can see clearly it's burned all around the beaver dam and everything except for right around the beaver dam is totally green still. And they're really beautiful photos. I think it's Joe Wheaton um, at University of Utah that has a really great photo series on that that just perfectly shows the impact of these water bodies within fire zones. Uh, The part that's most concerning to me about wildfire and what we're facing now is we're normalizing extreme wildfire that is nowhere close to natural and saying it's natural and it needs to burn and we just got to let it burn. Even though, you know, 95 to 99% of the fires are started by humans, very little are natural causes And then the bigger thing is this long-term desertification of the landscape has created this situation where instead of the woody debris being broken down by fungi into soil, it's building up as fuel for fire. And now you get these huge megafires coming through. Um, So absolutely, I think the biggest root cause of the wildfires that we're facing in the west right now are directly tied to the draining of the water levels throughout the landscape Mm. so
0: yeah because it seems like most of the impetus of the fire prevention has been focused on fuel reduction which is useful but it seems like very few people talking about the hydration angle right and so it feels like we can actually increase the uh, water table enough and it seems like if just say people in a community that's, say, in a you know, fire-prone area, say, like Grass Valley in California, where the water table is maybe a bit too shallow for the trees to reach. But if all the neighbors and all the people in there actually work to gather, infiltrate the rain, they could actually collectively raise the water table enough that they would actually hydrate their landscape a lot more into the dry season.
1: Absolutely. And we just, we're so reductionistic. We look at any tree as a potential fuel hazard and we don't even factor in what that, you know, a lot of trees are fire retardants. You look at willow, you look at French poplar, they actively retard a flame. There's stories from firefighters in Australia of being saved by willow trees. There's one willow tree that they have so much water when the fire hits them, they drop all their water into the air and they do more than a fire truck can. And so we're going through fuel reduction, fuel reduction, cut all the trees. We're not even considering whether those trees are actually fuel or actually reducing fire. Uh, And what we really need to do is be working on planting the right species, creating the right infiltration zones, creating healthy barriers so that we're set up in the event of a fire. Another property I visited in Australia it burned around him for two months coming in from all different angles and he didn't burn at all. He was turning crown fires to ground fires from the decentralized water retention that he had done, from the forestry management that he had done and from you know, setting his situation up so that all of the woody debris was becoming food for fungi instead of fuel for fire. Mm.
0: Yeah, Australia is particularly devastated by fires and floods and and droughts and heat waves. And, uh, if you were, if you were head of Australia, what, what would your strategic plan be to to help them deal with all this?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I often say that Australia and California are in a race to the bottom and it's hard to tell who's winning a lot of the time as far as (laughs) the water management in both of the places. It's to me, it's just as severe and just as atrocious. Um, You know, I think it's got to start with engaging people and telling people that uh, they have the power to do these different things. Uh, And I mean, honestly, I think a big part of the issues with Australia and in many places in the world are just governmental corruption. And so when we look at at how to fix a situation like that, a lot of it has to do with just having a government that's actually acting in the best interests of the people. The dirty secret about the fires in Australia is that Everyone in power wants them to burn because after they burn, it's easier for farmers to turn them into farmland. Uh, people can come through and log them, and it's easier for the geologists to travel and search for mining opportunities um, for different geology that they want to extract. And so, all of the very commercial interests want the land to burn. And so, the government doesn't really have any incentive to stop the fires. Um, other than, you know, all the people that are being, you know, uh, having all sorts of huge issues. In some cases, they were actually having to go to the ocean and get out in boats to survive the fires, because the fire was just going clean to the coast. There was no safe area except for on the water. Um and so, you know, it's just governments not acting in the best interest of their people. But the solution comes from actually people on the ground implementing these things. And so, whereas the government has made leaky weirs specifically illegal by name, which seems insane because one of the best techniques we know, one of the best examples uh, coming from Australia is now illegal in the place it was created. You know, there's so many policies, they're paying millions of dollars every year to get rid of the willow because it's an invasive species, not looking at the actual ecological impact of the plant and how it could benefit them. Um, so there's a lot of different ways, uh, you know, they, they charge people for water that they, they tax people for water that they store in their own farm dam. And so if you create a water body, now you're taxed for the water that you hold there and you're taxed for if you use the water. So, you know, if I could wave a magic wand. I would give people the power to steward their water and land specifically. Uh, I would give some incentives for holding water because Australia could be just one of the most beautiful places and not, you know, it's always going to be a land of extreme to some degree, uh, but it doesn't need to be anywhere near the degree it is today. Mm.
0: Uh, yeah. And Australia had, ha, has been going through, you know, they had droughts and then they had fires and then they had floods and then they had droughts again and then they had fires and then they had floods. And uh, um, and this is happening all around the world. And I think you call this the watershed death spiral. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Do you, do you want to speak a little to this uh, spiral and the problem of it and how we can get out of it?
1: Yeah, it's a feedback loop, you know, because the more water that runs off the landscape, the less infiltrates, the less vegetation that you have, the more heat domes that you have pushing away any moisture that comes in. And so you get this building up of pressure. Then you get these huge flooding events, but the soil's all hardened and exposed, so it can't absorb any of that. So all of the water runs quickly downstream, creating flooding and erosion. But then you naturally have the drought because all of that water that was meant to infiltrate into that landscape just ran quickly downstream. And now because that landscape's so dry, the forest can't maintain a healthy fungal population. They dry out, they form into tinder, and then they burn. And then you eventually get desert where it was really rich land. And so you look at starting in the Fertile Crescent 12,000 years ago, you can see this watershed death spiral travel around the world and create deserts in its wake one third of all the land on earth has been desertified by humans in just the last ten thousand years through this feedback loop of drier more extreme hotter less vegetation and all of those are factors that speed up the flywheel Mm.
0: so um so so there's probably some way to intervene intervene in this so like after say there's a big drought is it or after a fire or after a flood, what are the intervention measures people should do so that we can get out of this watershed death spiral? Yeah,
1: those are the times to act because people really need a reason to act. And those stresses, those crises make people ready for change. I was over in Australia during the fires in 2020 and everyone was ready to build a water body. Any everyone was ready to do something to not have this issue again. Um, so there is this natural cycle where, you know, you don't see the results of your work till after a rainy season, but as soon as you get into the first rainy season and after you immediately see the results. So it's, in one sense, it's long in that it might be a year or a few in some climates, but in other cases, it's really short because that's actually a really short period of time to see real environmental and climate change. Uh And so we can really quickly intervene by creating, oftentimes in the dry season, these different holding bodies, by creating ways that water is going to feed into the ground, by setting up the vegetation systems that are then going to shelter the earth and allow it to infiltrate more. And then we can really quickly start to work into the feedback loop of the healthy water cycle where we have more and more water infiltrating because we have more vegetation, cooler soil, feeding up more into the ground. The vegetation has water for longer. So it's cooling and transpiring, creating more humidity, creating bacteria, condensing more moisture, creating more rain. And so you can get this very, balanced natural full water cycle as well and so it's really up to us whether we keep pushing down the watershed death spiral or start working with these natural processes of the full water cycle to our benefit Mm.
0: and did 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 a lot of water bodies get built in australia after the fire do
1: you know Um, I mean, we built a few while we were there. Um, I'm sure there was an uptick in them. um, But there was certainly not any kind of governmental level change or initiative. Um, Mm. If anything, it went in the opposite direction. Uh, And, you know, it was really sad, because, you know, you see this huge crisis, and just every each side is blaming the other and neither are right, and neither are even addressing any of the real issues. Basically, you had the conservatives saying, it's all these greenies not letting us burn stuff, that's creating really bad situations. You had all the greenies saying, oh, it's all you conservatives and the climate change and the extra carbon is creating all these fires. And no one was even looking at any of the actual issues that have led to the bushfires from you know the real change in the prevalence of eucalyptus a relatively small portion of the forest to the vast majority the desertification of the landscape from grazing from mining from exploitation um and so it's just you know it's so far from actually addressing the root causes and if you're just looking at these superficial things you're never going to be able to change the situation
0: you know it occurs to me maybe one of the things you could do is like, because fires are happening all over the world, is kind of create these campaigns that, that the, maybe the permaculture people or whoever the land managers can kind of put out pamphlets or advertising about how water bodies help prevent fire. And then you blanket, you know, that city that's experiencing the fires. And then you, you activate, and there's a lot of permaculture students that maybe have some experience building some of these water bodies, but they don't get enough work. And so you activate all this, you know, people to kind of go in and... and help deal prevent
1: fires you know oh absolutely absolutely and those are the times to intervene and that's one of the big things that we uh, encourage the students of the course to do and the students that have done that have been really successful so in a, a bunch of different situations in europe and the united states all over during these times of crisis the students you know now feel fully prepared to prepare a really good presentation as far as why this is happening what the root causes are what they can change and now that community is immediately activated with their specific situation that person who put on the event immediately has a few projects and jobs from that one event that they put together and it's really amazing how it grows you know one of our student her first event had two people And then her next event had eight people. And then her next event had 28 people. And it it just really, as soon as you put it out there, it's so simple, it's so natural, it's so logical that when people get exposed to it, they get really excited by it.
0: Mm. Do you wanna say a bit about your course uh, and who, who, who can come and how many students you have and how it works?
1: Yeah, yeah, so this is really geared up around training water cycle restoration practitioners. Uh, in uh, I think it was 2018, I was visiting SEP and he gave me some really nice compliments, which he doesn't give out lightly. But then he made the very pointed statement that one of you is not enough. We need thousands, hundreds, thousands or millions would be even better. And it helped me realize that, you know, I can work myself into an early grave and it will make no substantive difference. We need hundreds, thousands of people with this information working in each of their own countries. Every place I go, we do one project and then all the neighbors want us to come back and then their friends want us to come back. So there's this really huge uncapitalized market of helping people treat their landscape in a better way. Uh, And so the course is all set up around training people to become a practitioner, whether it's a professional earning their livelihood doing water cycle restoration, a land steward managing one project to the best of their abilities for water and for life, or whether it's an advocate, someone who wants to be spreading this information, who wants to help others understand what's possible and how to do it. And so these three different pathways are available to people. Uh, We have two different versions. We're just going to be launching a self-paced online version so you can just go through the content on your own. But then the version that has been in existence and will continue as the advanced course is where it's a group of students from around the world going through the content all together on a six-month timeline with live office hours. And it's really been amazing to see how quickly people are enacting this. I mean, by the end of the course, by the end of six months, people already have projects and employment in this field. Just from the transformation that's happened in the six months of the course, um so I you know I thought it would be effective, but I didn't think it would happen this quickly mm.
0: so how how big is your is you have a current course, and how big is the how many people
1: yeah, there's uh what is it fifty three people in the current course that's just coming to a close in another couple of weeks, and then we'll open the next round of the course at the end of June into the beginning of July. And it'll start, uh, I think, the second week of July.
0: Okay, and where's that gonna be? Uh, So it's
1: online, online, but I say it's online, but at home. I've really been against online education because I think it's really hard to learn anything that way. Uh, But we've created this whole custom platform with a workbook and actions and activities. So most of the course is actually implementing the things you've learned in the course through these guided actions on your landscape and in your community. Um, so we say it's online, but at home because okay. most of the actual time for it is being out on your landscape, reading it, understanding where to put in features and then actually doing it. Cool.
0: And uh, what's the name of this course? And do you have a website for it? If people
1: want to yeah, know? it's called the Core Course uh, and waterstories.com is the website, waterstories.com slash course. Um, We'll get you to this course right now it's we, you know, we have and we will continue to offer some in person workshops. uh, But this is really the most inclusive where, you know, really, I looked at what is the five year transformation I undertook to become a water cycle restoration practitioner, how do we distill that down to the essential critical stuff and push people through it as quickly as possible. Uh, And that's where we got this six month timeline. Mm.
0: And And you train them to deal with different situations like the flood, the fires, the droughts, the heat waves, kind of depending on where they are in the more wet wet places and more dry places.
1: Yep, yep. And I, you know, really like anything working with natural systems, it has to be dynamic and adaptive. So it's very much not a recipe book, but rather a way of thinking and a way of learning. Uh, So we paint the picture of all these different examples and case studies, but even more so, we prepare people to, learn about their own landscape what interventions make the most sense uh, and you know a lot of that is going through the process of the workbook learning about your water where it's coming from what kind of impacts are affecting it and what you can do to help it
0: cool and then are you developing some kind of certification process around this that you want if you want to grow this too much bigger or, or how what's your plans for this
1: Yeah, and so this is our certification as well. Um, So we have those three different levels, professional, steward, and advocate. Um, We have a number of certificates already. We're actually soon going to be publishing our updated website that starts to list all of those people. Uh, And then we also will have the practitioner certification uh, that there's really no clear pathway to, but it's for people once they show a successful track record for a year or a couple of years. Um, then they get elevated to that highest level of certification. Um, but so, you know, it's it's really not easy. Uh, there's a lot of things that you need to do in order to get certified. But all of these things are for you, not for us, uh, because it paints out this journey where You know, at the end of the course, you've given a presentation in your community, you've done all these different things that are going to lead you to actually having a career in this. And so not all of them may make sense at the beginning, but if you do all the actions, I can guarantee you're going to have a community to work with and you're going to have interesting projects by the end of the process.
0: And what's the demand for people's services uh, once they kind of graduate and or like they're trying to start their own business around this?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's really high. um, And it also relates to all of your outreach. I think anytime you have this kind of new idea, you know, like the light bulb, people don't know they want the light bulb if they don't know the light bulb is a thing. If all they have is candles, and they're happy with candles, they're not in the store looking for a light bulb. So a big part of being successful is doing enough outreach to educate people about the importance of this. Um, So it's something that's definitely growing you know our community is always growing there's more and more interest all of the time but as far as creating the interest in local regions it's actually very easy to do if you follow a few key steps and you put in the time and you put in the outreach and all you need is a few projects to get started Um, and so you know a lot of uh, the students who have gone through the course as soon as they get those first couple of projects, very quickly they have more projects than they know what to do with. Um, Because once you do a few and then you start getting referrals and it starts to build up really quickly.
0: Yeah, I have a friend of mine who does this kind of work and he says there's just too many people asking for his help. And really what we need to do is really train. So it's, I think it's a field that has, the demand is far outstrips the supply. And so, um, yeah.
1: Oh, hugely. And, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing is that um, there's very few people that actually know how to do the things and create the change. And so there is huge, huge, huge demand in that. I mean, I've worked all around the world and, uh, you know, I always have way more projects coming in than I want. And it kind of amazes me that, you know, some farmer in Ecuador is going to fly me down. Um, And, you know, spend a very real portion of their income on it. And it's just because of this huge lack of people who can really do the things. Uh, There's a lot of people who, you know, can talk about it and make nice videos about it. Uh, But if you can actually practice it, that's a hugely valuable skill that once you have it, it really allows you to start taking on projects on your own terms. Mm. So
0: You know um let's say the government and the mainstream awakens to this these solutions to the floods the fires the 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 droughts and the heat waves because these the governments are throwing billions of dollars at each of these issues because it just swamps the people like if if we can get enough awareness to this um can we somehow activate a lot of people to start doing this or like is there some way to scale this whole up this whole education process up quickly so that a lot of people can learn these skills
1: oh yeah I mean that's one of the things that really excites me about online education is it has this ability to scale Uh, Mm -hmm. you know before doing the course I was just taking on apprentices and just one at a time is a slow way to grow and so Mm -hmm. if you can expose yourself in this modern age to some kind of exponential growth. I think that's a huge thing. And like you were saying, you know, even if the government doesn't care about the environment at all, and it's just a financial decision, it still makes tremendous sense to implement these kind of features to prevent the billions of dollars that they're then spending retroactively once the crisis happens. Um, now it's hard to convince people to spend money before the crisis happens. It's a lot easier after. But if we could start to use those resources after to prevent it the next time, that would be huge. Another small change that I think could be hugely impactful would be making the Department of Transportation, the Department of Transportation and Water Infiltration. Because they're one of the biggest desertifiers of the landscape and all the hard surfaces and drainage systems created. They have all the equipment, all of the easements, all of the technical know-how if every road project had to put in some water infiltration features as part of a reconstruction of that road now you could for a pretty small budget increase maybe 10 to 20% of that road project with every renovation project be creating infiltration on the land in a way that you know you already have the land access you already have the equipment you already have the technical know-how uh, and the civil engineering background mm-hmm.
0: It also seems to me insurance companies might be willing to hire some of these people, these permacultures and these water managers to to kind of, I mean, because if, if the fires are costing them billions of dollars in outlay, they maybe they want to prevent some of this.
1: And I the big, big one there is the insurance conglomerates that insure insurance agencies, because they're the ones that actually end up paying out in the event of a big fire or something like that these in a lot of cases the insurance agencies that are directly dealing with the people they're actually insured by these huge insurance companies that help them balance out their risk and these big insurance companies i think there's huge motivation for them to implement these kind of projects because they're the people you know getting stuck with the bill at the end of all of it Mm.
0: So what kind of uh, uh, results have you gotten with your Water Stories platform in educating? As I know you're putting out some really creative looking uh, animations that are really beautiful.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's been really fun to watch it grow. Um, Last time I checked, it was people in 152 different countries already in the community, uh, more than 4,000 people. It's really been amazing. It has scaled internationally much faster than I ever anticipated. Uh, you know I think it's one of the great powers of the internet is just that you can reach so many people so quickly uh, without ever knowing it's possible so I think we're very much at the beginning of the journey uh, but it's been really promising to see what's happened and what's come of it so far Mm.
0: cool Um, well thank you uh, for sharing all about your work and how to infiltrate landscapes and about your water stories and the elemental ecosystems yeah it's been really good uh hearing all this stuff
1: oh thank you so much for having me on it's been a joy and thank you for what you do i love the emails you've been sending out and all the work you've been doing so let's uh let's keep getting the word out about water
0: okay cool all right thank you
1: awesome thank you